We're gonna primarily be in Psalm 24.4, and here in a little bit, we're gonna actually move to Ephesians chapter four. But for right now, I want us to be and park in Psalm 24.4. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Let us pray. God, I give you glory and honor, Lord Jesus, and I ask, Lord, as I have asked for the last several weeks that you would be with me tonight as I speak. God, I pray that tonight that eyes and ears would be open and that this would be a time where you will deal with us, Lord Jesus. I pray, God, that your will be done tonight, and I give you glory and honor and praise in your precious son's name. Amen. I remember as a small child, um, just the seeds of Christ that were planted in my life, I remember my grandma sending me birthday cards and Christmas cards, and they would have a $3 check, and they would have a, a, a sticker sheet, and all the stickers said the same. They all reflected God's love. It said, God loves you, Jesus loves you. And I remember at an early age even tearing those stickers off of the sheet and thinking about Jesus, but not knowing truly who he was. And even in my teen years and my young adult years, I had people that would tell me, Jesus died on the cross for you. And I thought, that's great. What does that mean? And even in my uh, mid-20s, when I met my husband and God really started to deal with the wickedness and the depravity that I had lived in for so long, Again, people would tell me, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And I think, I know that I was reborn at the time that I came to conversion, but I will tell you that when the message was preached to me, it was not preached in completion. There were some things that were left out. And it was only when Michael's father, uh, my father-in-law, who's a preacher down in Huntsville, Texas, came up and sat with us at our dining room table. And I remember he got out this yellow notepad and he started sketching the tabernacle. And it was then that I understood what Christ had did for me. Not to say that I wasn't saved a couple of years prior, but it was then that my eyes were open and my life was completely changed because I understood that the cross of Christ was not simply a cross. And I'm not diminishing the work of the blood of Christ. It's everything. We live and breathe for Christ. But I will tell you that when he sketched out that tabernacle, it completely changed my life. Here on this piece of paper, he drew the courtyard, and inside of the courtyard, he drew the altar where the animals would be brought for slaughter, and the people would come and confess their sins, and the priest, and they would slaughter and sacrifice this animal, and the blood would atone for the sin. And the difference between Old Testament and New Testament is Old Testament and we're going to get to a little bit more later, but Old Testament is the blood of that animal would cover the sin, reconciling that person and those people to a holy God that in any other way they would never be able to have communion with. So he drew out the altar and the basin in which the priests would wash their hands and their feet. And this tent, this tabernacle, this beautiful creation that God gave blueprints for in Exodus that they worked so diligently on to make sure that it was actually to the specifications that God gave them. And this outer room, and inside of this outer room, once you would walk into this outer room, there would be a table and a, and a lamp and another altar of incense. And then you would be, go beyond this six inch, some extra biblical literature says six inches 
of curtain that would separate the outer room from the inner room. And in the inner room, that was where God would come and he would dwell among his people. And he would come down and he would speak to the high priest. And the high priest would take that communication and he would go to the people. Could you imagine being in the camp and being heartbroken and being desperate to get to God, but you couldn't? Because you had to have somebody that would go in place of you to communicate for you. And when he, draw, when he drew out this tabernacle on that sheet of paper, I will remember that my life was forever changed. Because he told me the simple truth that when Jesus gave up his life on the cross for us and his spirit ascended into heaven, the veil was torn from top to bottom. So that now anyone that wanted to have communion with God could go into the Holy of Holies and have communion with him. But I knew going forward in my walk and was faced with the truthful fact that because of my fleshly mind and my propensity for carnality, that it was absolutely critical that I stay in the position and posture of prayer and fellowship with communion, communion with God to, in order to, heal from, to hear from him. That altar, the cross of Christ that he sacrificed himself on for us to atone for our sins was not merely a cross. It was the last and final altar. It was the altar that was needed, and actually the entire, every article in the tabernacle was foreshadowing and telling of Christ's imminent, um, imminent coming. And so I look at this altar as a place to be dealt with, a place where we can go and die, and not only is it an instrument of death, but it's an instrument of life to where I can come and bringing the things that God needs to cut away from my life, I come to the altar and he cuts it away from me, but then he gives new life continually. But here's the thing. The cross of Christ is meant to press us further into relationship with the holy God. As a matter of fact, like I said, the entire article pointed to Christ. He sacrificed himself so that now we can be reconciled and move fully into God's presence. This relationship, this restoration this reconciliation that he has interceded on our behalf for. Jesus says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, when you come to the Lord, there's an automatic justification. Through faith in the atoning work of Christ and his precious blood, God looks at you and he says, now you are declared righteous. But going forward, there's a journey and it is a marathon, brothers and sisters. It's not a sprint. And it is this process of sanctification, and it's this continual life of God, pursuing God, hearing from God, speaking to God, listening to God. Sometimes we simply speak too much when we pray. Sometimes we need to sit and we need to be silent. And this is the pursuit of being continually made clean and coming into humility with the mindset and the tenderness of the Lord to the Lord saying, deal with me. If we refuse the voice of God and the correcting hand of God or the relationship of God and we do, submit, do not submit to his will and his way, we will never, ever, ever live the fullest life that Christ came to restore us to. Because the abundant life is him and we cannot have it without him, Jesus is everything. Jesus being the gate and the light and the bread of life and the one that leads us to this holy God. It reminds me of Exodus 19 when the Israelites were told for three days to ceremonially cleanse themselves and purify themselves. 
they caught to the base of the mountain and they were overcome with terror and they said, no, Moses, you go talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. They were satisfied with staying in the valley. I am convinced in Genesis 32 that when Jacob wrestled with God all night, he earned the Lord's respect because he wanted to be dealt with and he would not let go of God until God dealt with him. The purification work is done by the Holy Spirit, don't get me wrong, but however, we are instructed in Scripture to take deliberate steps to remove the things from our lives that are contaminations to our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. And pursuing the state of peace and purity and cleanliness and freedom from foulness, freedom from guilt, having innocence, chastity, and freedom from sinister and improper motive, improper motive, freedom from adulteration and contamination. This is what we must pursue. We must pursue holiness and righteousness. The church is being made ready. It is being made cleansed by the washing of the water of the word, Ephesians chapter 1. And we better make sure we are at the wedding feast. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Thessalonians 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. We are to live a separate life set apart for the work of God, to please God. I say that when individuals come to me and they ask for ways of being pure, ways to cleanse themselves, I believe I am doing them a disservice if I give them a list of things that they need to abstain from and the things that they need to adhere to. I am only giving them part of the gospel of Christ. And since ceremonial and ritualistic Purity was integral, intricate to the life of, of the law under Moses. In a culture of severe perversion, which the state we are in, and the, moral, the immorality, the church must be diligent about teaching and taking intentional measures to purify itself, making itself ready for the bridegroom. We must constantly be prepared for him. The greatest miracle, this is from Leonard Ravenhill, one of my favorite preachers, the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy, then put him back into the unholy world and keep him holy in it. The cross of Christ is meant to push us into the holy place. It is the finished work by Christ himself. We have been saved from God, by God, for God. And in regards to this holy place, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? I'll give you the title of my message tonight. The title of my message for you note takers is this. There is only room for holiness in the holy place. Tonight I'm going to give you several points of things that do not belong in the holy place. When we talk about that, Psalm 24.4 and it says, I, that, that person that does not lift up his soul to what is false, we must remember that coming to God in deliberate, loyal worship is key. Somebody comes to me and asks me, how can I live a pure life? My first question should be, 
Are you deliberately and with great loyalty only worshiping God? Or are there idols that you have set up in your life? Number one, there is no room for idolatry in the holy place. There is no room for idolatry in the holy place. We must be a people who first and foremost desire to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. And as you sit here and meditate on what I'm sharing with you, ask the Lord to deal with you on this. Are you a Christian who wants to ascend the hill of the Lord? And do you want to stand in his holy place? We must deliberately and with great loyalty only worship the true God. And only those who travel with clean hands and an untainted heart cleansed in Christ will complete this journey. Now we're going to move to Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteous and holiness. Which brings me to point number two. There is no room for the carnal mind in the holy place. Christ is the lesson. He teaches the lesson. In verse 17 to 18, we see the transition of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul begins to speak specifically about the unconverted. Paul urges us to walk according to the illumination and the teaching we have received from Christ Jesus. The unconverted love the darkness, and that love for darkness has given birth into a hardening of the heart. They willfully ignore the work of God. They are driven by vain ambitions, worldly possessions, and temporal ideology. In all in all, the unconverted, the carnal mind thinks about the here and now. They have no consideration at all for eternal promises. The converted are driven by Christ, for Christ, and to Christ. They are focused on Christ's finished work, his eternal promises, and heavenly possessions. Romans 8, 3 through 8, for what the law could not do in that It was weak through the flesh God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is at war against God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Chronicles 28.9 tells us that we must serve him with a loyal heart 
and with a willing mind. Psalm 7, 9 tells us that God tests the hearts and the minds. In Psalm 26, 2, the psalmist goes to the Lord and he says, deal with me, examine me, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. If you'd like to be in perfect peace, keep your mind stayed upon Christ. Romans 12, 2, we all know, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. I will tell you, when I read this scripture, I had an ouch moment. We take comfort in the lie that people are inherently good. So our lost family members, our loved ones that we desperately want to see come to conversion, deep down, we believe they're innocent people that first they alienated themselves from God, and then that led to the ignorance, and then that led to the hardening of their heart. But that is not what Scripture says. If you dissect to see Ephesians chapter 4, it is that the hardening of the heart leads to ignorance that leads to alienation from God. It is that they do not acknowledge the Lord and they love the darkness. If you want to pray a brave, courageous prayer for those that are lost, you pray that they would hate the darkness and that they would love Christ and they would acknowledge God in his fullness. Number three, there is no room for sensuality in the holy place. Sensuality is the devil's substitute for sensitivity. We see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, it says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I googled sensuality. I kind of, I love words, and I google words a lot, and I wanted to see what it said on sensuality. Sensuality, this is what Google says. Sensuality helps us to get out of our heads and into our bodies, and it is much easier to be confident, but confident about what you can actively experience. If you struggle with insecurity, shyness, just get into your body and get out of your head. This is what secular teaches. It is demonic, it is earthly, and it is sexual in nature. James 3.5, refer to um, bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts that it is earthly and sensual. In Jude chapter 1, that entire chapter is dedicated to false teachers that have crept in unnoticed, they're ungodly, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Jude sharply describes these weeds among the wheat as hidden reefs in your love feasts, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds. He goes on and on, and none of it is positive. We see that sensual anywhere in Scripture that is seen is demonic in nature. Now, I did go to, when doing this, I did have some thought about Song of Solomon, and I had to weigh that. Song of Solomon and Song of, so Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. I challenge you that what is written in that book between two lovers, a bride and her groom, is not sensuality. It is vulnerability. 
we have a huge issue sometimes with marriages in the fact that they see the world of sensuality and they believe it belongs in the marriage bed. It does not. What belongs in the marriage is vulnerability. Those that do not have the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit will utilize the devil's fabrication of it, which is sensuality. Number four, there is no room for the old man in the holy place. It is not merely enough to take off the old man, but to put on the new man. It is not enough to abstain from evil deeds, corrupt speech, fruitless conversations. We must practice the principles and put on pleasing God. Colossians 3, 5 through 7. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you may also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. One time we were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. We are to continually be discerning as to what is pleasing to the Lord and live a life of purification. We must hate what he hates and love what he loves. Inward purity is critical for the life of a Christ follower. Now, anybody that knows and has conversations with me longer than five minutes knows that I tend to go towards one topic of conversation, and that would be marriage. And the reason is because I love marriage. I love being married. I believe that above motherhood, that marriage is the most incredible gift that God gives to his people. It is the image and the representation of Jesus Christ in the church. And to be honest, I mean, I wish I was born married to my husband. I wish I would have met him when I was, because I tell you, I just, I love him so much. But the role of the husband, I want to touch on this because this is important. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Marriage is this beautiful depiction, like I said, of Christ in the church. It's Christ, the husband, and the church, the bride. And it's the husband as Christ coming over the bride and saying, I am responsible for you. I will nourish you. I will cherish you. I will be your burden bearer. I will protect you, and I will disciple you and teach you, and I will wash you according to the water of the word. And the wife in response is the church, like wise, comes under the headship of Christ, comes under her husband and says, you are responsible for me. I will cast my burdens upon you. I will trust you. I will be faithful to you. One of the things that we see and one of the things that I've taught my boys since they were a super young age were the three Ps, to be the pastor of your home, to be the protector of your home, and be the provider of your home. It has been a culture that has been established in our home since they were super small. One of the things that I teach them is this incredible point of having cleansed her by the washing of water, that he would protect her purity. I didn't live in this time, but years and years ago, it, would, it was known that if two men were having a conversation and a young woman walked up and there was coarse joking or coarse jesting, somebody was getting his lights knocked out because you didn't talk that way in front of a woman. Our culture has abandoned that, and the church has abandoned that. When I say the church, I don't mean the Well Worship Center. I'm talking about as a whole. We must be people who seek holiness and righteousness and protect the reputation of our young women. And so with that, one of the roles that my husband and I, we adhere very closely to this. He is the one that guards my heart and my mind. It does not mean that I don't have my own relationship with the Lord and that I don't cast my own burdens on him, but I rely on him to help me with my sanctification process and purity. If I could, please have Chris come back up. God gave me this vision, this analogy of what I've been talking to you tonight about. I would get this vision of a woman with a soiled dress. She would take it down to the river and she would beat it on a rock. She would beat out the impurities and then she would go back to the river and she would wash the dress in the river. And again, she would take it, that dress, and she would go back to the rock, and she would beat it on the rock. And then she would go back to the river, allowing the river to run through it and over it to wash away the impurities. When I talk to you about this imagery, I want to make it clear that the rock is necessary and the river is necessary. The rock are the things that the Lord uses to beat us up against, to remove the purities from our lives, their situations, their behaviors in our children, 
there's conversations that we have that are uncomfortable or those, those things that simply just need to be removed from our lives. And the river is the word of God. It's the Bible. And it's knowing it and going to it and allowing it to cleanse us and wash us, to purify us, to teach us and rebuke us. I don't want to be a woman who is satisfied in the valley. I want to ascend the hill of the Lord. And I want to stand in the holy place. And like Jael drove that tent peg through the enemy's head, I want to be a woman like Jael that deals with the things in my life. And I want to come to the altar. And when I come, I want to say, God, deal with me like you dealt with Jacob and wrestle with me all night long. And don't let me go until I have apprehended that which has apprehended me. I am concerned that a lot of the church, they have dismissed the need for the river. They don't go to the Word. The other thing that the Lord led me to was this rock that's necessary for cleansing out impurities. We tend to see it as a form of punishment and not a form of discipline. And I want to be a woman who sees the things that God is doing in my my life as good things, as things not to go around, but things to press through and allow those things to be removed from my life and for God, like the surgeon that he is, to come in and do surgery on my heart and my mind and my will. Anybody that tells you that God will bend his will to you once you come to Christ, you run. God is not going to bend his will to you, but you will forever bend your will to him. And it is worth it. He is worth it.